verse 2, the second uh, part of verse 2, Romans 12, verse 2. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Um, And just by way of reminder or perhaps uh, understanding for the first time, one of the reasons that we uh, go through our liturgy the way that we do or the order of our worship is so that when we receive God's word, we receive it in an appropriate context. Because if we receive God's word before we remind ourselves that we're called by grace, we might think all we need to do is just obey whatever God says and keep him happy. Um, If we receive God's word before confession, we we might think, well, this is just something that I need to do, but it doesn't really spiritually heal or restore me or this world. It's just merely an order or religion of things for me to do. But if we just receive it in the midst of confession, we might think this is our penance to follow God's word. But we receive it after we've taken communion, after we've sat and reminded ourselves of the cross that by God's grace, hopefully, we now receive it uh, out of worship, and we receive it out of grace, and then we, we obey and respond uh, out of love, out of the God who loves us, loves us first. And so that's why we come to the word now, and then afterwards we sing and we have a benediction, a blessing for the road. So because he has called us, because we've confessed our sin, because he's forgiven us, healed us, we've received his word and can go obey with joy and gladness and love. That, that, that's the idea. Um, and in particular, I think that is helpful for us today because we're in a, in a world, in a, in a city, in a context. In the midst of that, Christians are called to know and believe and understand and live the desire of God, the will of someone else. This is, this is very unpopular today to think that I am going to allow my life to be dictated by the will of another, but that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about how we make decisions, and in particular, what God's will actually is. Because don't you love these fantastic Christian sayings and ideas that are thrown around all the time, and we're not quite sure exactly what in the world that means? What does it mean, is it God's will? I don't know. Like, how do, is that even something that you understand? I don't understand my spouse's will, my children's will. How am I going to know the God of the universe and what, what he desires? So the question for us today is, what is God's will? How do we discern his will? And what does it even look like to obey it? What does it look like to live out his will? And I think Paul addresses this in the second half of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It gives us clarity and a clear roadmap, if you will, for considering. So look at it again with me. You've just heard Christina read it, but let's hear it again. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that second part, that by testing, he says, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's how I'd like to organize our time today. Conceiving the will of God or what is it? discerning God's will, how do we know it for our own lives, and then thirdly, obeying God's will. How do, we, how do we live this out? So conceiving, discerning, and then obeying. Sound good to three of you? Good. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. Um, apparently, this text is telling us that we can know your will. We can know your mind. We can understand what you desire left to ourselves, that seems perhaps a bit odd um, or impossible or perhaps even foolish to our more modern mindset. And so we need your help. We need your help to know exactly what that means, what's Paul getting at here. And then we desire to be obedient children to our Heavenly Father. And so give us clarity, practically speaking, what that looks like to live in a manner worthy of the calling, as Paul writes uh, elsewhere, for us to be people who are about the will of God in appropriate ways, 
We pray that you would protect us from legalism that supposes that God's will says something that it doesn't, and, and protect us from uh, a kind of freedom that believes that you don't really have anything to say about our lives, that you just want us according to your word. Um, and so you're really kind to do that every week, every time we open up the scriptures personally, individually, and, and corporately. And so we trust that you will do that now by your grace for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has taken, uh, we looked at, his most dramatic shift in Romans at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, The first 11 chapters, if you remember, are committed to doctrinal teaching. He wants his readers to understand or to know the gospel. He wants them to understand or know God. He's repeatedly especially explained how Jews and Gentiles, people who did not really cross paths culturally, certainly not religiously and spiritually, he wants them to understand how the same gospel, the same truth has justified both of them or bears the capacity to transform both of them by grace. They are saved by grace, through faith. They are justified by love, as we've said. Now he transitions then from all that Christian thinking. Here's how a Christian is meant to think and understand who God is, what grace is. Here's how you're supposed to live. And I think that's important for some of us to just hear today. Christians aren't just those who think a certain way. They are those who also live in accordance with that certain way of thinking. You picking up what I'm throwing down? That you cannot have just one of those things. You can't just say, here's how a Christian lives, or here's how a Christian thinks. The scriptures say you've got to do both. Paul is writing to a diverse city, not unlike Chicago. See, some people lived in Rome their entire lives. Others had moved to the city from small towns in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Indiana, right, and all of surrounding suburban areas for various different reasons. But no matter where they've come from, they all bring their own way of thinking and their own way of living. So as we look at this recipe for disaster culturally in Rome, we can relate to it. All of these people come in with their way of thinking, their way of living, and now we're gathered here at ICI on a Sunday morning, and we got to love each other, and we've got to love our neighbors, and we've got to follow Jesus, and we've got to think through all of those different things. Now, most people who move to the big city, they move to the big city because the big city makes a big promise, and the promise is that you can become great. You can become great here in ways that perhaps you could not become great in wherever you came from previously. Whether you desire community, marriage, education, money, fame, the the city promises it can meet your desires. There is, of course, an exchange. There's always a price to be paid to moving to the city and believing that the city will uh, make your dreams come true. And it's interesting when you look at the United States, for your desires to be met in somewhere like New York City or Los Angeles, you have to be unique. It would be very different than just about anyone and everyone next to you, or at least suppose that you are. If you move to San Francisco and want your dreams to be met there, you better have a really great idea that no one else has even thought of before, or at least shape, shape it or frame it a little bit differently than the last person. In Boston, you've got to be brilliant. But if you come to Chicago, you better work. You better work hard. In our city, you have to be willing to work harder than anyone and everyone. This is why we call it a city of big shoulders, right? Give me whatever problem, I'll solve it, put it on my shoulder, I'll figure it out. We're going to figure this thing out together because nobody's going to work as hard as us. Your deepest longings, the city's promise, will be fulfilled in you as long as you work hard enough. Now, if you're a Chicago native, the work is about being strong 
you've weathered and endured years of really terrible sports teams, right? So that, that is part of what has just helped you to weather the storms of life. Or even much more serious things like brutal weather and, and historic racial injustice and dealing with the real and fictional violence of reputation in this city. You feel like after all of that, those things have weathered you into a kind of person that could do anything. That's how hard you've worked. But if you've moved to Chicago for school or career, for relationship, work is about never resting and giving yourself to deadlines, projects, climbing the ladder of your company, regardless of where exactly that ladder is headed. If you show me a ladder in my organization, I will climb that mug until there are no more steps to take. Nevertheless, we're all committed, I think, to working hard because we want our desires to be met or in the language of our investigation today, because we want our will to be done. And that's the promise of the city. You come here, you work hard, the city will do your will. All the while, we fail to realize that perhaps we are doing the will of the city. See, Paul has just finished explaining that Christians are those who offer their whole self as living sacrifices. In verse 1, he says, everybody worships. We are meant to worship in sort of countercultural ways against the grain of prevailing cultures, cultural practices in the first century, places like Rome, or the 21st century in places like Chicago. And then we learn that everything shapes your worship. Paul warned his readers not to conform to the loves of Rome or Chicago, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Now, even obey the will of God, and everyone obeys someone. Everyone obeys someone or something. Romans 12.2, again, says that by the testing of their faith, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The key or controlling idea for us today in all of the second half of verse 2 is the idea that you've been given a new mind, that you have this new mind. That's the key. And with this new mind, then, we can test, discern, and even obey God's will. In other words, in a city committed to fulfilling their own dreams, their own will, and their own desires through working hard, we are called to fulfill the will and dreams of God by grace. That's different. That's different. We are meant to be people who love and live within this city, but we do not behave and act and follow the will of the city. We follow the will of another. Now, of course, we should ask, now, what, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to obey God? Why would we want to fulfill His will over and against the will of someone or something else, particularly myself? And what does God even desire? What exactly is God's will? Now, this should concern us on a number of levels, I think. Every day we make and really need to make decisions. We have things that come before us. Where should I live? Where should my kids go to school? Should we move to the suburbs? It seems like a lot. What do I say to my, who should I date? Should we have children? Should I go to that restaurant? What, what do I say to my boss if she says this to me? How do I respond to my neighbor who's still awake at like 9.30 making crazy noise? Like, what does it look like to obey Jesus after 9.30? Maybe some of you don't have to worry about that. I do all of the time. It's still loud out there. I don't understand. Go to bed. Every day, <laughs> though, we are faced with decisions, aren't we? Like this, some small, some big. And what does God want us to do in the middle of that? Have you ever wondered that? What does God really want me to do? So this text, and really all of Scripture, invites Christians into making a decision based on God. First, we acknowledge that our impulse is to make our decisions based on me, but the Scriptures say, base your decisions on God. His will is good for you. 
We don't have time to totally unpack that today, but that is a fundamental impulse of why we would obey the He knows what satisfies and fulfills and fulfills that design in us. In heeding this invitation, then, we resist the city's false promises to fulfill our own because the city never satisfies. This is why people leave. This is why people don't like the city. This is why they move to a different city to say, well, maybe I'm unique. I'll go to a different city. Maybe I'm smart. I'll go to another city. I can't work hard. And so we move to all these different places to try to ultimately satisfy the same thing within us. So when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about at least two things. For centuries, theologians have been debating over this, and as best as I can understand, they've settled on a couple of ideas. They've settled on looking at God's will in two different ways. What should happen and what shall happen. What should happen and what shall happen. And some, you know, because theologians don't really get along, some want a third one about what God has allowed to happen. But we'll just focus on the first two. What should happen and what shall happen. Both are God's will. What that tells us is that what God desires or what should happen does not always happen in that first category. What should happen is often called God's moral or uh, perceptive will. We might also think about his will or his moral will as centered on what God values. Notice Paul describes God's will as that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We sense this aspect of his will whenever he commands or conveys a desire for us to live a certain way. Like in 1 Thessalonians, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from uh, sexual immorality. God's will is that we are sanctified, that you grow in holiness. It's always at least that, that you grow in holiness. And a few verses later, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and hear this, for this is the will. Be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Are you with me? That's really good news. His will is that you'd be joyful. His will is that you'd be thankful. His will is that you would be prayerful. It also bears, the moral will of God also bears meaning when it comes to salvation. Peter explains in 2 Peter verse 3 and 9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing or desiring or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires that everyone should repent. God desires that everyone be holy. God desires that everyone be joyful and prayerful and thankful, but not everyone is, and not everyone does. God's will is that all people look like, this is what it should be like, is what God is saying. But it's not always the case. That's God's moral will. But then what God ordains, or what shall happen, always happens. What shall happen is known as his sovereign or decreative will, his decreed will. We might think about this, uh, his sovereign will, as what God purposes and accomplishes. So we get this from Job's story, the much afflicted faithful servant of God, if you have heard of his story. Um, But also, he says in Job chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You imagine saying that in the midst of your deepest and darkest suffering? God, I know you can do anything, and if you would want in just a second, like all of this would end, but I'm going to chill right here for a second. <laughs> He's hanging on the psalmist, even says in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Paul writes of God's sovereign will in Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of what? His will. 
God desires his purposes to be accomplished, and they are always accomplished. That's uh, moral will is his revealed will. Don't you love how theologians, they come up with like six names for one thing. We just all agree. But the reason that that's really an intriguing title is because God wants us to know his will. He wants us to know his moral will. He wants you to know his moral will more than you do. So when we're just like, ah, I just don't know what he wants me, he's desiring for you to know it even more than you or me. Now, another name for God's sovereign will is his hidden will. That's because his wisdom and love, in his wisdom and love, God does not overwhelm us with the fullness of his plans and purposes because we could neither comprehend them nor carry them. A lot of times we want God, just tell me what you're doing. If you would just give me the whole story, right? If you would just tell me that I'm going to meet this person in five years, that would be great. If you just tell me I would hit this level at my job, at this point, I could wait and be patient. We, we think the more information we have, the more at peace we will be. And the Lord is like, you have no idea what you're asking. If, if I just downloaded all of this on you, it would crush you. You were not made for that. I am the one who can bear that burden, not you. It's like a child. When my children ask me about our budget, can we afford this? Can we do this? How much money do we have? Shh. You don't need to, like, that will crush you. You're not ready for, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready for all of that information, right? Because what I want you to do is just enjoy this slice of pizza and know that God is faithful, right? Amen? You want some pizza, Jetty? I feel you, man. Was that a promise? That may just be God's moral will for you today. We'll see. <laughs> he withholds some things from us because he's made us and he knows what we can handle. See, this is really instructing so much time between God's revealed and hidden will. I think especially because we spend so much time and too much emotion trying to understand God's sovereign will and we neglect his moral will. In other words, we keep trying to figure out what he says is hidden and refuse to obey and know. As I spend so much time, God, tell me the things that you have told me in your word you're not going to tell me. And he's like, would you do the things that I have made so plain to you? They're right before you. Just obey them. That's really hard. So much of the time when we are seeking to know something of God's will that he is saying, wait, he's almost always saying, but I've already shown you a bunch. Would you do that? Would you trust me in that? Would you follow me in that? See, we ignore what he is making plain because we want to know what he is keeping a secret. It takes trust. Back in Romans 12, Paul is focused on moral will, God's revealed will. That is, his will which he longs to be fulfilled and obeyed, and in order for his moral will to be done in and through us, we need a new mind. And we can resist our own will and the will of the city, if you will. And we can use this new mind, he says, to test and discern what he desires for us to do. So not only is he making it plain, he's given you everything you need to figure it out and obey it. He's given you a new mind. This is really good news. Now let me repeat something that's really important. I think I just don't want to overlook it. So this is why we preachers repeat stuff. It's good for my soul, hopefully for yours. God really wants you to know his will. He's not playing games with you, right? He's not playing games. He's just like, you just got to guess what I want and please me, right? That's not the kind of thing I like, right? That, that's not what he's like. He's like, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to do. Here's who I am. 
We're to resist conforming to this world, Paul says, resist trusting the false promises of the city, and we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And the very fact that he gives you a new mind assures us that he wants us to comprehend what he's talking about. Specifically, this is grace. It's love. It's mercy. That through salvation, you have been given a new mind. And and what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians is actually the mind of Christ. He says in verse, or chapter 2, verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And because of this new mind, you can understand the mind of the Lord. We can discern the will of God. Now let's get really specific. The new these consciousness empower us to discern and understand what Paul is writing about in Romans 12 verse 2 that is good, perfect, and acceptable. And those new realities, three things, God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. These are the things that with that new mind come to us that we can discern and test what God wants us to know and wants us to do. See, when we are seeking to understand God's will, these are the places we're supposed to go to look for clarity and understanding. This is not what the city does. The city says, come to me and I'll make your dreams come true. Just work hard. The world doesn't teach us to do these things either. The city tells us, look within to the invisible and felt desires and impulses of your heart and do those things. But Jesus says, look to my spirit, look to my word, and look to my people. Whether we're making a specific decision or we're just learning to build our life on Jesus, this is where we go. We should look at all three of these realities. This is how we make decisions. This is how we know God's will. First, we go to his spirit. God's Spirit helps us to discern God's will. Jesus tells his disciples that after his ascension to the Father, John 14, 6, or 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And what else? And bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. This is, this is brilliant. So many times I go, I just wish like, I could talk to Jesus face to face. He and I could have a conversation that would give me some surety. And he's like, actually, I've given you the Spirit of God to remind you of everything that I have said, so why don't you listen to him? This calls the Holy Spirit to help. That was a whole purpose of sending my Spirit to you. So he's actually already doing that. Now notice, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. That's who he is. That's what he does. The Spirit of God actually inhabits the people of God and helps us to know and remember the will of God or what Jesus has said. This is not his only role. In our lives, learn more and to even grow with you in understanding the difference between a feeling and the spirit of the living God talking to you. It's different. We, we actually ask for the spirit of God's help. We don't talk to our feelings. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is God. We speak to him. Holy Spirit, is there sin in me? What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? Am I seeing things clearly? Or am I operating out of fear? See, as we seek the Spirit's guidance, He directs us to the truth and beauty of Jesus. He does not validate your hunches. He does not validate my hunches. He is not a spiritual escape clause from holiness. In other words, church, this is what we do a lot. There's this thing I want to do, and I know my small group leader is going to ask me, have I prayed about it? I know that my brother or sister is going to ask if I prayed about it. I'm going to do that thing, but then ultimately, I'm just going to be like, yeah, the Holy Spirit looks like he's good, so y'all can't tell me nothing, right? That is not the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's breaking of one of the Ten Commandments, which is bearing false witness, like God said something that he didn't. You better be really careful, church. That's not the Holy Spirit. 
God's Spirit helps us to discern God's will by reminding us of who God is, who we are, and what He has said. That means if we want to say, here's what the Holy Spirit said, we better be able to confirm it with the second movement of discerning God's will, which is what? God's Word. Because the Spirit of God never says anything that contradicts God's Word. The Spirit of God never draws us away from the Lord Himself, but brings us to His Word. So that's the second thing. God's Word helps us to discern God's will. The Word helps us to expose us. It helps us by exposing the gospel. In fact, like the Spirit, we're told that the Word actually dwells within the people of God. In other words, the Word is not just something that I read, but it begins to shape my intellect, shape my affections, shape who I am. John describes the Word as light, a light which tells the truth about us and tells the truth about God. He says, John does in uh, 1 John 1, verse 5 and 10, this is the message We have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have sinned, have not sinned rather, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's how we know the will of God, that it works through his word. It reveals, it exposes the brilliance of God, it exposes my sinfulness. But as God's will exposes Though it reminds us of the truth of who God is, the truth of my condition, and then it points me to the brilliance and forgiveness and healing and restoration and empowerment of my Lord and Savior. It's complete. So if I walk away, God's will is that I feel like trash. No, it's not. God's will is that I don't ever look at my sin. No, it's not. It's both of those things with this wonderful hope of the gospel that knits me back together. The same power that knit you together in your mother's womb knits you back together every time you sin. See, to discern God's will, we need to open our Bibles. You need to open your Bible. I need to open mine. We should be annoyingly consistent as followers of Jesus. When you've got a decision to make, it's not like footnote that thing, but what about God's character and his word has led you to that kind of surety? Right? We navigate that together. And it, and it shouldn't be weird, right, that we open up, you know, I don't know what to do. Let's open that. Should I marry this person? I don't know. Let's look at God's word. Let's see if this is actually a good idea. Should I leave this? I don't know. Should I get a new job? Let's open God's Word together. Let's test and discern what God's will is. See, God's Word helps us to discern God's will by exposing us and exposing the gospel. How does sin get exposed in my life? How does the Word of God point me to the beauty and truth of Jesus? How does it point me back to the cross and my need for Him? It's explicit. It tells us what is good, what is acceptable, what, it, what is right. And when it doesn't, when it's not explicit, it builds our character. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And when we fall short, the will of God does not leave us there. It knits us back together by grace. Now, here's the temptation with those two ways of knowing God's will. I could do that by myself. I'll just listen to the Spirit. I'll open up the Word. But we also need each other. We need each other. God's people help us discern God's will. Theologian Marvadon notes one terribly overlooked aspect of testing and approving the will of God is that we do that within the framework of Christian community and not alone. Too many of us too often make decisions in isolation. Bull. Hear this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'd like, you can turn there just uh, to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're still in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7 through 12. Paul is teaching his readers 
about their union together as God's people. He says, for a man, oops, that's the wrong reference. I have the wrong reference in here. I'm not sure. That's not going to be helpful. Let's see. At least not for this moment. Hear this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing uh, but by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another interpretation of tongues. Here's what he says, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. We've all been given different insight, understanding, different gifts by God's Spirit, and it's not just for you. You've not just been empowered and gifted in the ways that you have for yourself. Paul says it's for the common good, the good of your church family, members of one body. And so once we've heeded the instruction of God's Spirit, we've looked to God's Word, we go to God's people and ask for their help and insight. This is the beauty of groups. This is the beauty of doing life together. And they're helping you see what you, you're helping me. Do you, do you see? This is what a community actually is. Not people that appease one another so that your dreams are fulfilled, but that all of us work together in collection with the Holy Spirit that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to participate in that. What a beautiful calling we have together. We go to our brothers and sisters and go, do you agree with this? Does this make sense to you? Do you disagree? How would you, like, what question would you ask me? Do you see God's Word and sense God's Spirit differently than me, or or are you understanding this the same way? What do they uniquely contribute to your understanding and application of God's Word? This is really vulnerable, by the way, because you might think, if they hear that I think about God this way, or if I interpret this this way, they probably won't want to be in community with me, right? Here, Here, just let you know, we're all thinking that. We're all worried about that. And so the way to actually get over that together is walk in the light as he is in the light so we'll have fellowship with one another and with the Lord, right? You go, man, I'm having a hard time understanding how to address this with one of my colleagues. Here's what I read about, about showing love and living as best I can with peace with one another. Am I missing something in that? Because I want to punch this dude. Help me, right? (laughs) Help me. See, God's people help us discern God's will by using their unique gifts for the good of all. And the primary responsibility then of God's people, and this is really important, is to make sure that God's Spirit and God's Word have been heard and heeded appropriately. So when someone comes to you or comes to me and says, here's what God's Word's saying, here's what God's Spirit's saying, we don't go, that feels right to me, that seems good, go with that. We are not a third equivalent party to God's Spirit and God's Word. We go, you know what, let's go to the Word together. Let's go to God's Spirit together. We don't insert our person. This is not a vote. This is a check. This is a making. See, if God's word and God's spirit have been humbly consulted, then God's people celebrate the diversity and beauty and differences of the ways that we're learning to apply God's word. See, it's meant to actually create freedom, not conformity. You have gone to God's Spirit. You have gone to His Word. And I actually may see that differently, but I trust actually that you're humble in this, that your heart is right in this. 
See, conceiving God's will is all about understanding his moral desires. Discerning God's will is all about consulting his spirit, his word, and his people. And having considered what God's will is and what Paul means by testing God's will, we now have to think about what it looks like to obey it. In fact, the word that Paul uses for discern communicates both the idea of discovery and application. Scholar Leon Morrison explain, or Morris rather, explains that Paul is arguing for a spiritual discernment that ascertains what God wants us to do and then sets itself to do it. He's communicating both of those things in discernment. Or as someone else has said, we don't find out the will of God to think about it only, but to do it. We do this a lot, don't we? I mean, we just think about God's will. <laughs> we spend hours and years in comment sections and even in small groups talking about how God loves the poor, how greed is bad, right? And we see it corrupting all kinds of corporate structures all over the city and world. And people need to confess and be honest. But have you helped the poor? Are you putting to death greed in your own life and in your own heart? Are you walking in humility with your community with confession and lament? In other words, I think we often stop short. We can critique a bunch of people because we know God's will and they're not following it. That's good. It's good that we know God's will. Satan knows God's will. It's plain to him because God has made it plain. But in order to fully discern, we need to obey it. We must do what is good. We must do what is acceptable. We must do what is perfect or whole in Christ. Now, obeying God's will, I think, may cause a lot of us fear. So let's talk about that. We might be afraid that if we don't do what is perfectly good and, and acceptable and pleasing in God's eyes, he'll be angry and upset with us. And God's word and spirit and people are rarely, are get, can get very specific about those things. And I wonder if I'm going to do all of that, that right. Rarely do we have an exact specific thing in like Ephesians that says, here's who you're supposed to marry. Here's the school you're supposed to go to. And you're like, thank you, Paul, 2,000 years ago, knowing about Northwestern University. Super helpful, right? They can't tell us specifics about where to go for lunch, what job to take, how much money to give away. God's will never works like that at least not in some of the ways that we ask it to. God's will does not prescribe practical specifics. Instead, often what God's will does is form your character. To be sure, there are aspects when God's moral will is specific. We looked at the Ten Commandments. We shouldn't go, is that really going to shape my character to have no other gods before? He's like, no, just do that. This is clear. We don't need to go to the Holy Spirit and just go, is that what he really meant? Because that's actually what got Adam and Eve in trouble, Right? When the, when the serpent comes along and goes, I don't think he really said that. He did. He really said that. Don't eat of that tree. It's clear. It's his moral will. But most of his moral will shapes our character in the likeness of Jesus, and then we are given freedom in the specifics. Think of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Good example. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The specifics of how those are lived out are different from believer to believer. Let's keep in mind, obedience is always about the matter of the heart. We can seemingly do what is good, acceptable, perfect, and not really be obeying, right? <laughs> think, think the religious leaders and the Pharisees when Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside and dead on the inside. So it's not even just about making sure we're doing all of the right things. It's making sure that our heart is in line with the Lord. 
Similarly, we could fail to perfectly and precisely do Jesus. Three years with the disciples. How many times did this dude have to repeat himself to the disciples, correct them, and say, no, no, you're not getting it yet. You're not getting it. And he keeps them around. It's such a brilliant gift that God keeps the disciples around, especially Peter. Peter gives us a lot of hope. Follow his story and you just go, if he kept Peter, he'll keep me, right? (laughs) It should give us a lot of hope. That's what the Lord reminds us of. The prophet, when he speaks to the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. He's speaking about Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. This is a matter of divine grace and kindness, and I think it frees us from obeying out of fear and frees us to obey out of love. It frees us from believing that God wills something that he doesn't. Usually a very conservative Christian approach is that God has ordained stuff that he just hasn't ordained. Or it also frees us from believing that God hasn't willed something that he has, which is much more of a liberal Christian approach, that there should be a gray area in places that are really plain. Let's practice this. It'll be fun. Let's consider a moral decision that often gets treated like a sovereign one. Moral decision that often gets treated like a sovereign one. And if you know me, you know this is really close to my heart, so it's kind of exposing. A lot of people leave Chicago, right? A lot of people leave the city. And of course, they leave for many different reasons. Uh, Many of you may leave at some point. Many of us may leave at some point. And in my short time in the city, about eight years, few things have been more over-spiritualized and done without attempting to uh, discern God's will than leaving the city. And I'm not trying to be funny. That, those are just facts. Few people come after investigating the Spirit, His Word, and His people and have deduced this is what I need to do. Now, often we ask the question, does God want me to leave Chicago? And if so, when? At what number of kids? What's the white picket fence look like? And when is that track going to let me go? Right? But I think a better question is, why do I want to leave? compelled to leave, are we leaving out of love or fear? And if we're compelled to stay, are we staying for the sake of our own glory and good or the glory of the Lord and the good of our neighbors? The promises of God or the promises of the city? See, some of us have stayed too long in Chicago bowing to the idols of this city, still hoping that it's going to make all of our dreams come true. Others of us have left without ever asking, what's the will of God in my life? Maybe we've even gone to God's Spirit. We've gone to His Word. We've gone to His people. And yet, there are no specifics, no practical answers, no clear biblical mandates about which city to call home, right? So what do we do? How do we even discern? How can we even as a church just go, God has called us from the city? How arrogant can that be to some people to hear? This is where He's called us. Well, we test and we discern the will of God. We go to His Spirit. We ask Him to remind us, what's Jesus taught us? We go to his word and allow the light to expose sin and point us to truth. We go to his people and invite their gifts to hold us accountable. And whether we move or not or get married or not or do whatever or not, God's will first and foremost is for you to love and trust him. So should you leave the city? A better question is do you love and trust him? Because we make a lot of decisions out of distrust and fear when it comes to the city where we work, where we live, how we have our being, how we even look at someone as we walk past them on the street. Fear is driving that. Distrust is driving that. God's will is for you to be unhitched 
from the lies of this world and any city that you could call home that promises you something that only the Lord can deliver. And if you can do that, if you can live with love and trust, there is no clear, and there's no clear prohibition, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. It might sound crazy, but when St. Augustine, the North African theologian, was preaching from 1 John 4 back in the day in the 3rd and 4th century, he centered God's will on love. Here's what he told his listeners. Love God and do whatever you please for the soul loved. God's will is all about love, isn't it? God's will, will God's will then invites you to love him. Obeying God's will will ultimately, ultimately be about our love for him and his purposes and his desires over and against the desires and will of a city. And in fact, in Galatians 5, it says, if you have loved God, you've fulfilled all of his commands. I hope that gives you peace. It doesn't mean you don't go through the process that he has given us in our new minds to discern his will. It means that ultimately that's the question I'm asking when I go to his spirit, when I go to his word, when I go to his people. Am I doing this out of love for him and trusting that he loves me or am I doing it out of fear? And so with Augustine, in a way perhaps that I've not done in eight years of living in Chicago, I invite you, whatever decision you make about whatever, love God and then do whatever.